My name is Josh Rice. Um, I'm on the preaching team here at, uh, at Outward Church. We're really glad to have you here today. Man, that was a great worship set. Thank you so much, guys. Um, I didn't think I'd be here. I thought we'd, my wife might be in Japan by now, but we're still here, so you have to deal with one more uh, Sunday for me. So I'll try to make it as painless as possible. Um, one thing that's been interesting the last year, since we got back from Indonesia in May, is when you meet people, you know, at a, I don't know, at a, at a party or someone you bump into at the store or I was talking with a guy next to me at a Mariners game a couple months back, people always ask, what do you do, right? Like, this is like, we're Americans. Job's really important to us. That's one of the first questions is, what's your name? Where do you live? What do you do? It's up there. And I've had to start telling people, hey, that was a weird way to put it. I've started telling people, I'm going to be a missionary. And immediately people are like, oh, it's really quiet and awkward. And, and almost always, I'd say probably 60% of the time, the person follows up with, I think being a good person is pretty important. <laughs> or I believe in being a good person. Or something like, yeah, you know, I think some sort of comment about being a good person. Or yeah, I think, you know, teaching people how to be, be kind is good. Some sort of anodyne comment about being good, being good. It's good that people are good. All right, yeah. And this is like, it's a really lame kind of statement, but isn't that, if, if you guys have, have a, you know, I grew up as a PK, my dad was a pastor. Every time we're at the supermarket, we're at, you know, any place you meet people, immediately someone finds out my dad's a pastor, exact same thing. So this is no change. This is where I grew up. When people learn that you're a pastor or missionary, they're always like, oh, well, well I'm a, I think I'm trying to be a good person. So my message for us today is the Christian message is not about being a good person. If you're here because you want to be a, a good person, you want to be a better person, I do have good news on that front that Jesus can transform you. So there's good news on that, but you need to know that the way into where you wanna be, if you wanna be a better, richer, stronger, more robust person in your innermost self, if you wanna be that, you need to know that the way there is not by trying to be a better person. That's not the route to where you wanna get. You won't get there from this path. We just sang about bones. Dead bones. Ezekiel 37 has a story all about it where Ezekiel walks out before a valley covered with dead bones. And God, who always has a kind of ironic sense of humor, says, Son of man, he asks Ezekiel, can these bones live? It's a stupid question. No, bones don't live, they're bones. Bones are dead, right? And Ezekiel knows this chapter 37. By this point, Ezekiel knows God well enough to know not to play the game and says, Lord God, you know. <laughs> he looks at the bones and is like, if you're asking this question, I assume you have a plan here because they're bones. You know, God. And then God said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you. I'm going to cause flesh to come upon you and cover with you, you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and know that I am the Lord Yahweh. So looking at these dead bones, which are dead, the first thing that happens to them is God acts to make them come alive. 
I want you to get the priority here. We've been talking the last couple of weeks about predestination, about God choosing his people from the beginning of time, from before the universe was made. Why does Paul talk so much about this weird abstraction? Like, when did God save people? When did God plan what he would do? The reason why it's important we know it's an eternity past is because otherwise we might think we do it. We might think we're in charge. We might think it's hinging on us. If you and I are dead bones and the Bible says we are, you can't make yourself alive. Dead bones don't get the option to think, I'd like to be alive, because they're dead. Like, it's stupid to think otherwise, but we do that all the time. I'm always thinking, if I got a little more Jesus sprinkled on top of me, I'd be a better person. We don't need Jesus sprinkled on top. We need a transfusion of his spirit and blood into us or we stay dead. I'm trying to make it as simple as possible. That's what we're looking at today. Sorry, I had to go to Ezekiel because we, we sang about it. Here's my thesis for the day, and then I'll go ahead and pray real quick, and we'll get into it. Here's my thesis. Here's my argument. Here's my point. Our sin and the world's injustice can only be healed by the bottomless mercy found in the cross. I'll say that again slowly. Our sin and the world's justice, injustice can only be healed by the bottomless mercy found in the cross. It's the only way to fix what's wrong with us and what's wrong with the world. Let me pray and we'll get into this. Dear Jesus, would you calm my nerves, God, and make my voice clear? God, I pray you'd open eyes. I pray we would see the transparent truth of your word, that you are God. You're the same God that's always been saving dead, broken, sick people that need a complete revolution in their life. You supply that. God, would we stop our piecemeal, our partial, our lackluster efforts to be better, and will we cling on to the rock solid truth that you have done everything to make us new in Jesus Christ? Would we hold on to that? Would we see this passage here in Ephesians and would it transform us? Would we put down our tools and our efforts and stop our sweating and say, on the cross, you have done everything that ever needed to happen all we have now is joy and peace in you. Would you grant us that this morning? Amen. Short passage. Just, I'm just only going to go with verse 7. That's all we need to talk about today. I'll read it, and we'll look at a couple different parts of it. In him, we're just talking about the beloved. Who's the beloved? Jesus. In Jesus, in him, we have redemption through Jesus' blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Now, the first place to start, and this is why I started thinking about being a good person, is are we sure that we need this grace? I mean, one of the classic things that you bump into when people learn that you're in a religious profession is that being good is what it's all about. If I'm being good, if I'm working hard to be a good person, am I really in this category, the people who need 
trespasses forgiven? Am I a trespasser? Am I a lawbreaker? Am I a sinner? Again, if you've been in church a long time, you know the answer I'm going to give you is, yes, you need this forgiveness. Guys, teaching the Bible is funny because there's literally no spoilers. You know where I'm going with this, but, but follow me through the thinking here. You and I hate the fact that the thing that's wrong with the world is what's wrong with you. In case you feel like I'm pointing you out. What's wrong with the world is what's wrong with me. G.K. Chesterton said one time in in a letter he wrote, he said that if you wanna fix what's wrong with the world, you start from this assumption. What's wrong with the world is in me. If you start any other place, then it's that bad person. Isn't that why our politics is so messed up today? It's not me, it's them. If we get rid of them, if we punish them, if we make them do X or Y or Z or we have X or Y new law, then everything will be fixed because I'm not the problem, they're the problem. Can you come up with a story that's more human than that? That's literally all of human history is they're the bad people, we're the good people. There's an old Bob Dylan song, maybe you've heard it, uh, God was on our side, and each, each verse he sings about another war and said, God was on our side. The point he's making, ironically, is whose side is God on? Are you so sure that whatever you do is supported by God? Are you always on the right team? And you're supposed to think about it and be like, oh, I think I just assume I'm always the good guy. Am I always? <laughs> Am I ever? <laughs> Follow me here. So what I'm saying to you guys, what the scripture tells us is in Romans. Romans 9. He's talking about Jews and Gentiles. Jews, the people of God, Gentiles, they're outsiders, pagans. And instead of saying to to his fellow Jewish folks, hey, it's great, we're in God's club, we got Moses, we're just saying same God, right? Moses, Mary, they're all good people from Jewish faith. Instead of saying, way to go, you got born in the right family, he says, are, this is a Romans 3, 9. Are we Jews any better off? Not at all. For we have already charged that all Jews and Greeks are under sin. As it is written, he quotes the Old Testament, no one is righteous, no, not one. Nobody is doing the things they ought to do. No one understands. No one seeks for God, he says. All have turned aside. That's an amazing statement. No one understands. No one seeks for God. Paul is saying, deep down, no one wants to meet God. There's a a, a classic book um, on on religion. It's called The Idea of the Holy by Rudolf Otto. He wrote it in, I think, the 1880s. Um, And he uses a word he calls the numinous. When you're, uh, this could be like an indigenous people group. When when, uh, When people write about having a spiritual experience, they write about coming into contact with something other. It's not them, it's not another person, it's something different. Again, as Christians, we believe that's a thing. There's demons, there's angels, there's God, there are forces out there in the world. And Rudolf Otto says, when you bump into it, it's the numinous, this unknown subterranean power that when you bump, touch it, you're like, whoa, what was that? He gives an example, he says, if I told you in the other room, there's a tiger. You might be afraid because tigers could eat you, but what if I said in the other room, there's an evil spirit? How should you feel about the other room? Like, is it real? But you don't know. Is there an evil spirit? Are you guys tracking with me here? His point is, that's what spiritual reality is. This thing that you, if you bump into it, you know it, but it's really hard to know if it's real. It's hard to know what to do about it. It's just kind of there. 
But what scripture says is, even though spiritual reality is all around us, nobody wants to know it. We want to close our eyes and focus on what we're doing. No one's looking for God because we're dead, dry bones. You getting the theme here? I don't go looking for God. I don't want God. I want to be in charge of my life. So stay with me here. When we look at the world and it's so obviously broken, if you can't see that the brokenness is in you, you're not getting it. But this is hard, you guys. I don't know if you guys remember the movie Django. From It's a very violent movie, just don't maybe have your kids watch it. Uh, Django's an interesting movie. It's about a, a, a freed slave who basically goes and kills a bunch of white slave owners. And I remember I was reading a review of it after the movie came out, and the guy said, I like this movie because I want to believe if I was back there in 1860, I would have shot those slave owners in the head. And I, I, I about fell out of my chair. As a historian, it's like, the reason why history is terrible is because we're all slave owners. We're all people. If we weren't back in history, would have done the same evil things because we're people. Are you with me? Like, if you look, I mean, there's, there's great books about the Nazis. The regular Nazis were not unusually evil people. The regular people are like, well, if I don't join the party, I'll lose my job. I guess I'll join the party. What would it hurt? Am, are you guys tracking with me here? I'm telling you that the evil that we see in history, slavery, the Holocaust, the power to do those things is in you and me. I don't like this doctrine. The scriptures say it's true. I wish that wasn't true about me, but the Bible says everything I hate out there is waiting, lurking in here. Isn't that what it says? Temptation's walking around like a roaring lion. It will devour anyone that comes near. If you don't root it out by the power of Jesus Christ, the worst evils in human history are waiting in your breast to come out and work their power. Can I be any starker or clearer on this? That's our state. This is why it says no one seeks for God. So that's my point one. We are all in the state. And I don't like this. I wish this was not the case. But the Bible says this is where we are. So start with me in point one. We are all sinners in desperate need of transformation. There's a, a, one, one of my favorite authors, um, Leslek Kowalski, uh, the Polish author in the 70s, he wrote a great critique of Edward Thompson. This is like historian inside baseball. Uh, Edward Thompson, a famous historian and communist, was writing all these letters about how great communism was, how terrible capitalism was, and Kowalkowski writes him back this long, like, 20-page sarcastic letter titled, My Correct Views on Everything. It's super sarcastic. He's basically trying to tell this guy, would you get over yourself and realize that any system invented by man is fallen? I think it's probably the most powerful takedown of communism ever written, actually. And he has this one point where he says, everything you write about, how the world should be like this, people should be kind, everyone should have everything they need. And Kolakowski says, if you're saying that the world should be good and not bad, I am entirely on your side on this issue. Think about that. If you're saying things should be better, I agree. The problem is where we are is things aren't good. Things are broken. So if you just say we got to fix other people, you're not getting how deep the problem goes. Okay. Second point. If we are trespassers, if we are sinners, I always do this. Okay, I'll go back. <laughs> Let me give you one last point. 
why can't God just fix us, fix the world up? Why does he have to fix me and you? Why can't he just fix the world? It's because our nature is corrupted. We break it again. Think about that for a second. Isn't it funny when you deal with kids and they're like, after you clean up a mess, if you give them the same thing back to them, what do they do? They make the mess again. That's why being a parent is so frustrating sometimes. They keep doing the same thing because they're kids. Guys, we are trespassers. We're lawbreakers. We break things. So if I am returned to a fixed universe, me and Brock are still going to have an argument. I'm just picking Brock for no reason. Sorry, Brock. But whatever it might be, if you have a disagreement with your in-laws, guess what? If the world gets fixed, that doesn't fix your relationship because you're both still you. You with me? So that's the problem is God can't say, everything's fixed and put us back in that world because we destroy it again. Vandals have wrecked the beautiful creation of God and we are those vandals. We've broken it and if he puts us back in, We'll just break it again. This is why something's got to happen to us. Can I give you some good news? This is where we're going. The beginning of verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood. Redemption, it's the word apolytrosin in Greek. It means payment to get something back. A literal translation would be ransom. Redeem is one of those words I feel is like almost overly Christianized. I love that ransom means money. You pay something to get something back, okay? This is what a ransom is. In him we have ransom through his blood. If you're not sure about that, 1 Peter 1, verse 18. He says, knowing you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. So Peter's saying, you were in debt, and the only way to get you out was to pay for it, okay? That's the whole message of Scripture, is that we are indebted. Here's a, have you thought about this? Who are we in debt to? Or put it differently, who's got to be paid off to set you free? Now, this is a, a classic argument in Christian theology, and because uh, this is my way, I want to say it's a bunch of different things at once. On the one hand, let's say, let's say my vandal example. We've all heard news stories about, you know, a guy who commits an evil act, kills someone in, you know, a car crash. I'll give, you, I'll give you a real example. Some people that my wife and I knew who were headed to Japan uh, four years ago now, um, they were on their last trip uh, in the States, driving through Nebraska on I-80. Uh, um, Jameson, his wife, and their four kids in the minivan driving, and a truck driver plowed into them at 90 miles an hour from behind and killed all of them on the spot. What I'm trying to talk about here is ransom. Who do we need to pay for what we owe? What happened to Jameson and his family is deeply evil and wrong. Now, his family, they actually attended John Piper's church in Minneapolis. This driver, the police found him, and he was put on trial, and the family showed up at his trial and said, we want to forgive him. Let him go free. I don't even understand that depth of forgiveness. But here's the problem with why can't God just forgive everybody? What about the vandalism we've done to the whole world. He can forgive you or me, but who's going to pay to fix it? 
what if one of their children, they're all with the Lord now, what if some of them had been needing intensive care or needed a, a you know, support for the rest of their life. Who's going to pay for that? Here's the point I'm trying to make. The damage that we have done to the world is such, not only can God not just fix us and put us back in, but the repairs have to be paid for. Things have to be completely rebuilt. He can't put us back into that world. And so part of our debt is we owe to God for what we've done to his world. Part of our debt is that we owe to fix what's been broken. But there's another thing that we owe. Scripture tells us that by being sinners, we have fallen under the power of Satan. I, there, I, there's no way around this in Scripture. If you are a sinner, you're under the power of evil. You are not free. So another thing that has to be done is we have to be freed from that captivity to Satan. You with me? So there's two debts, if you will. We owe a debt to God to fix what's been broken, to do the repairs for our vandalism, but also we got to get Satan out of the equation because as long as he's our Lord and master, we're not going to be free. Think about the difference in Jesus, Lord, and Satan, Lord. Jesus dies for us. Satan, what's Satan mean? In Hebrew, it means accuser. Jesus argues for us on, on our behalf to the Father, and Satan says, he did it again. He's still just like that. And Jesus says, I've taken care of everything. Are you getting the difference here? So I want you to see, we've got a doubly-edged debt. We have to get Satan out of the equation and free us from his tyranny. We're in his thrall. We're under his control. We're his... You want to use the, 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 I think, the right language? It's like feudalism. We're his vassal. He owns our work. Isn't that what it means to be living in the sinful world of sinners? Is whatever we do accrues to his benefit, accrues to more breaking of the world. Okay. So we need to be freed from what we owe, the debt we owe to God. We need to be freed from Satan's tyranny. This is why we need the blood of Jesus. In Jesus, we have a complete exchange. Think about this for a second. There's a big gap between subjective and objective evil. For instance, the fact that Jesus is killed on the cross is subjectively wrong. It's unjust that the righteous one is killed. You tracking with me? It's wrong. The scripture says, it's, 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 an, um, it's not Ezekiel. Uh, anyways, Nahum says at least once that the one who does the wicked deed should die. Jesus has done no wicked deed. He should not die. Jesus, the righteous one, should live. We, the wicked ones, should be destroyed. So there's subjective injustice. Why am I allowed to live? Why am I given the blessings of Jesus? That is subjectively wrong. I don't deserve it. But you know what's also subjectively wrong? Jesus, he does not deserve the punishment he received. Think about Jesus in the garden when he was waiting for the cup of wrath to be given to him. He didn't deserve it. There's no reason that he should have had to take on the wrath of God. Here's where those two subjective injustices cross, though. God says he would punish wickedness and evil. So punishment is coming. 
And because the world's broken and because you and I are broken, the only way to fix this world is to wipe the slate clean and start again. That's what the flood was, right? When the story of Noah and the whole world's destroyed, that's the solution God selected in that moment, saving, except for Noah and his family, was wiping the slate clean and starting over. That's what God would have to do again. So I want you to think about this for a second. In the injustice Jesus experienced on the cross, in the injustice you and I get a fresh life in Jesus despite our sinfulness, God validates his justice objectively, okay? In other words, I got what I didn't deserve. Jesus got what he didn't deserve. But that validates that when God says, I punish sin, it's true. And when God says, I give mercy, to the humble and broken, it's also true. So in Jesus Christ, we see the union of God's complete justice, his hatred of sin, and also his mercy to the broken, the lowly. If you're not not buying me here, think about it this way. Why couldn't God just forgive? Why couldn't God just say, hey, it's all right. It's like, you know, Oprah, you get a car, you get that sort of thing, you get grace, and you get, why can't God just do it like that? Which he is prodigal in giving his grace, but why does someone have to die for this? It's because God said, my world's broken, it has to be paid for. Think about it this way. Why does God put such destruction on his son? It's because he's answering your question in mind. When is someone gonna do something about the Hitlers and the Putins and the abortionists? I mean, I'm being honest with you. Name an evil. When is God gonna do something about it? And the answer is, you know he'll do something about it. Why? Because he crushed his son. Think about that. If you are worried that God will not bring justice, look at what he had to do to Jesus Christ. He crushed his son, the righteous one. Do you think he's going to let evil go unpunished? You know he won't because he brought the full weight of his wrath onto his son so you and I could slip through into newness of life. He validated his complete justice and righteousness that the world will be set right and he found a way that you and I broke broken people who can't live in that new coming world can be brought in. Are you guys tracking with me right now? What I'm telling you is that just like we heard in the song, when Moses is facing the Red Sea, there's no way to get through. God does a miracle. That's the cross. We're stuck between our sin and the world's brokenness. God's absolute justice demands destruction of wickedness. And that is us, people. That's you and me. We're the vandals. But God in his mercy, look at the end of the verse, according to the riches of his grace. God's so merciful that he sends his own son to die for you and me. That's the whole Christian message. Give you another one. First Peter three. For Christ also suffered once for the sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Read that again. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, 
that he might bring us to God. Jesus' mission in dying on the cross, if you've never heard Christianity before, if you don't know what it's about, the whole message of Christianity is you and I are broken, messed up, the world is waiting for its coming destruction because it's all broken and messed up, and Jesus died for you and me so we could be with God in the new world he's building even right now in our hearts. That's the whole message of Christianity. We can walk in newness of life today because of what Jesus has done. Now maybe, a couple more things I'll mention. Maybe you've been wondering, the last couple of weeks we've been talking about predestination, God's plan from the beginning of time. Maybe you're wondering, did he choose me? Did God pick me? Brothers, sisters, let me encourage you. The scripture says no one can say Jesus is Lord without the power of the Spirit. So if you think in your heart of hearts, if you believe in your heart of hearts and think in your mind of minds, so to speak, if you really believe Jesus is Lord, he died for you, it's true. You can't believe that Jesus died for you if God hasn't picked you. Can I be clear enough on that? It's impossible, why? Because the things of God are foolishness. If Jesus has not, if God has not picked you from the beginning of time and Jesus hasn't died for you, this is rubbish, this is foolishness. Paul says, I came to you not with clever words, but with Christ crucified. Because if you see it and say it's true, it's for you, brothers and sisters. There's a, a buddy I had back when I was living in, in Houston. Um, big Yankees fan, which drove, drove me crazy. But <laughs> neat guy. And I think for about four or five years, he was stuck in this weird Calvinist purgatory where he was like, well, I believe Jesus died for sinners, but I don't know if he died for me. I want you to think about this, and, and praise the Lord, like God hit him upside the head. He's, he's, he's believing now. He knows, he knows he's a Christian now. If you think to yourself, I'm too sinful. This week I was too bad. I broke too many rules. God can't forgive me. God shouldn't forgive me. The scripture actually says, how dare you? He crushed his son. You think you've done enough bad he can't fix you? You think you've gone too far? You're besmirching, you're sp speaking ill of the majesty of Jesus' death. You tracking with me? If you say I'm too far, you're saying, God, eh -eh, sacrifice of Jesus wasn't good enough for me. What a weird sort of pride, right? You're like, yeah, I'm just a little bit too sinful for uh, the Almighty. <laughs> but that's what we do, isn't it? When you, if you think you're beyond the pale, you're telling God that his son wasn't enough. How dare we think like that? The beauty of Jesus is that, actually, I was reading, a, uh, this is um, a couple years ago, uh, Nabil Qureshi's Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. If you haven't read it, good book, read it. One of the things um, Christians deal with in talking with Muslims and trying to bring them over to Christian faith is that Muslims often struggle with the math. How can all the sins in the world be paid for by one guy? That's a fair question, but the answer is because Jesus is infinitely good and worthy and beautiful. He's God, and so when he pays the punishment, the greatest subjective injustice, it validates God's eternal justice. And so in that one death, all can be made alive. You with me? If you believe Jesus died, you are at the door of salvation, friend. You don't need anything else to get in. I don't want you, if you've been listening the last couple weeks, 
If you are struggling with, am I called, am I chosen? Stop. Do you believe Jesus was put on a tree? If you can think that and believe it's true, you're in the club because he only allows that foolishness to make sense to the one who knows it was for them. If you see Jesus on the cross, he's your savior now. Can I be clearer than that? That's how immediate it is. Today is the day of salvation. Just a couple things, and we'll close. Let me read, I'll go through Romans real quick, Romans 3. <laughs> I've had a couple people last like, couple months say various things like, oh, well, you're a missionary. Wow, it drives me freaking crazy. I am nothing special. Missionaries are nothing special. Pastors are nothing special. Listen here, this is Romans 3. What becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. Anytime you think you're doing good, whoa, watch out. If you think you've bumped into a spiritual superstar, watch out. Why do you think we have cult leaders and like abusive pastors in this country? Actually, everywhere, sadly. It's because we put people up on a pedestal and say, wow, look at them. Stop. There's only one person that should have your allegiance. Only one person that should blow you away. And that's the one who was on the cross for you. You get me? Nobody else is in a special class. There's only one who's in that class, and that's the Lord. This is why, this is why if we're going to get to it in Ephesians 2, when he's going to say, stop thinking you're special. Paul's going to say, stop being proud of yourself. God did it. You're the dry bones. Don't get confused. This is Romans 3. I, I, I'm hitting the same thing here, but I want people to get it. We hold, this is Romans 3, 28, we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. For is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Let me go back a couple of verses. I'll, I'll read 3.23. It's the classic, but I'm going there. And we'll do verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ is for all who believe. There is no distinction between Jew and Gentile. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the ransom that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation, that payment, ransom, the ransom payment put forward as a propitiation by Christ's blood to be received by faith. The payment for the debt you owe to God is Jesus' death. The thing that frees you from Satan's power is Jesus' power. Now, in, in, in the first couple of centuries of the church, some people would go so far as to call this the payment to Satan theory, and that's not true. Satan didn't need to get paid off. But what needed to happen is we needed to be rested, freed out from his command. Because God didn't put us under Satan's authority. Who did? We did. When I decided to be a sinner, when I acted following, what, what does Jesus say when he argues with the Pharisees? He says, you act just like your dad. Right? Doesn't he say that? He says, you act like your father is the, one, the father of disobedience. When we act like Satan, when we sin, we are putting ourselves in his household. Didn't we just sing, let the house of the Lord sing praise? We start in the house of Satan as sinners, and Jesus welcomes us to a new household. Isn't it a better household? You can be in the household of the Lord today if you put faith in Jesus. Okay, I'm done. Let me give you my last point here. Sorry, I'm a professor. I say I've done like eight times. This is Hebrews 12, 24. Actually, I'll, I'll back up. I'll go verse 22. 
Um, you want to put this up on the screen for me, please? Hebrews 12, 22. Fast. Hey, there we go. Nice. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God. He's talking about Christians. What is it that you're doing? You've come to Mount Zion where God is, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. So this is for people who are with Jesus. Their names are written in the Lamb's book of life. To God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Here's the verse I want to get to. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. I want to go to the Old Testament because I love it, and let's close with that thought. In the Old Testament, you guys maybe have heard the story of Cain and Abel. Brothers and Abel pleases God with his offering, and Cain doesn't. That's almost all we know of the story. It's very brief. Cain gets mad that Abel pleased God, and he didn't. And so he goes out into a field, tricks his brother, and kills Abel. And God says to Cain, he says, where's your brother at? And Cain says, uh, am I in charge? Am I my brother's keeper? Am I in charge of where he's at? I don't know. And God says, your brother's blood called to me from the ground. It cried out. Oh, get this. What does Abel's blood cry for? My brother did it. He's guilty. Isn't that what Abel's blood would say? God, right this wrong. Isn't that what you and I say when we look at the evils in the world? God, fix this. Do you want know the beauty of Jesus' blood? Jesus' blood doesn't say, my brother is guilty. Jesus says, make my brother free. You see the beauty in that? Jesus looks at you and me, and even though we, like Cain, have killed our brother, Jesus says, because my blood's on the ground, they get to walk. They get to go free. The beauty of the Christian message, friends, brothers and sisters, beloved, the message of Jesus Christ for you is that all the wrongs you've ever done were put on Jesus, and you get to walk off scot-free because his blood is that good. His mercies are so rich. It says the richness of God's mercy at the end of the verse. The word there can be uh, uh, plautus in Greek. It can mean flow or sail. Grace doesn't just show up in your life. It's this rushing tide that blows into your life and makes your dry, dead bones alive. That's why Christians sing. We're all messed up and broken, but Jesus has made us alive because his blood speaks the perfect word to save us. We're going to have people come up to the front. We're going to take communion. Go ahead and, as the ushers get ready, go ahead and come up, take the cup and, and the, the juice and, and the bread. Go back to your seats. We'll all take it together. Take this time. Thanks. Take this time, Scripture tells us to, to think a little bit, to examine yourself. Ask the Lord to show you who you really are and who he really is.
I'm gonna pray and then we'll take together. Dear Jesus, would we know this meal is for us? If all we can grasp is that we're broken and we need a savior, that's enough. You're the one who does all the work. Thank you, God, that we don't have to meet a certain criteria. We don't have to reach a certain level of goodness. We don't have to have a religious profession. All we need is to bathe in the blood of your son. Scripture uses bloody words because that's how broken we are. We need a radical thing done, and you did it on the cross. Would we cling to that? Amen. Brothers and sisters, this cracker represents Jesus' body. It was broken for us. Hear this. If you feel like a complete schmuck today, if you feel like you just suck, if you feel like you're the person that's just the complete trespasser and the lawbreaker, welcome to the club. Paul says, everybody should think they're the chief of sinners. Keep it in mind, you're messed up. But if you come and say, I need something radical, this meal is for you. If you think you're safe, don't touch it. If you know this is the only meal, the body and blood of Jesus that will keep you alive, then this is the perfect time to take. Let's take it together. This represents the blood of Jesus, and the same thing holds true. If you think you're fine, this cup is not for you. It's only the hurting, the broken, the beaten down, the depressed, the despairing, the criminal, the can't just be quite good enoughs. If that's you, this meal was made for you. Jesus was broken and his blood was poured out because it was the only thing that would let you and me be God's friend. And hallelujah, scripture says that Jesus calls us his brothers. He's our friend. Take this, know that Jesus is your friend. Let's worship our friend, our Lord, together. Amen.